Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21. And while you're doing that, just remember if you have a noise-making device like this, go ahead and silence that now so we don't have any of those interruptions. 1 Kings chapter 21. Had a little background music, kind of a segue into here to the lesson, right? Okay. Heavy and displeased. This is how we left King Ahab last week, isn't it? He was heavy and displeased with the prophet's message of punishment. And then with Naboth, the owner of a vineyard, who told him, No, Ahab, you can't have my vineyard. He used different words, but that's essentially what he told him. And in response to that, Ahab's wife, Jezebel, questioned his manhood again, saying, Dost thou now govern Israel? That is, who's in charge here, you or Naboth? A rhetorical question that did not demand an answer, but the answer should have been obvious to Ahab. And disregarding the will of God, the will of Naboth, and even the will of Ahab, Jezebel determines that the vineyard will soon be delivered into Ahab's hands. So she further tells him, look down in verse 7, in the middle of the verse, Arise and eat bread. And let thine heart be merry. She said, get up, get fed, and get glad. Now Ahab had no reason to do any of those three things Jezebel suggested. It would have been better for him to fast, to lay down, and be displeased than to play along with what Jezebel had in mind. In Luke chapter 12... Verses 16 through 21, if you're taking notes, Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. The Bible says about Jesus, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be married. Now that's essentially the same thing Jezebel told Ahab to do. But God said unto him, Thou fool. So what is Ahab if he follows these instructions? He's a fool. Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those rich things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. By gaining Naboth's vineyard, 
by deception. And we're going to see by an awful crime, in fact, he took possession of this vineyard. Ahab would lay up many earthly treasures for himself. Remember, he wanted to use that vineyard to grow something else, to grow herbs. And it was close to where he lived, and so it was desirable to him. And like the man in Jesus' parable, Ahab was a rich man. He already had vineyards of his own. He had plenty. He was a king. But he just wanted what someone else had. That means he coveted. And he would have much goods laid up and therefore have reason to eat bread and be merry if you go by Jezebel's logic. But the sentence upon such a greedy man is clearly given in Jesus' parable. And that sentence is death. One who will be rich in the things of this world and not toward God has determined, I don't want anything to do with God or with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to have a good time and live it up and get as many toys as I can before I draw my last breath. The sentence upon that man is death. And what's more here, Ahab had already had the sentence of death pronounced upon him by the prophet. You remember what the prophet told him. Your life for his life and your people's life for his people's life. When he let Ben-Hadad go rather than destroying him who was the enemy of Israel. Ahab... perhaps been nonchalant and said, ah, that old prophet, he's always saying stuff like that. But he was heavy and displeased at the prophet's message. He was heavy and displeased at Naboth's refusal. Look further in verse 7 now as Jezebel continues these ill-advised instructions. She said, I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she had already told him to celebrate, to eat, and to eat his bread and let his heart be merry before he ever had possession of the vineyard. Now that's something only a Christian can do based upon God's promises. When God says, you have eternal life in my son and you've believed in his son, then when we sing these songs and these songs say things about the the joys of heaven and the future bliss that we have in the reunion with Jesus Christ, body, soul, and spirit, we celebrate those things as though they have already happened because they have in truth and they will in time. But for Naboth or for Ahab to celebrate having possession of this vineyard when it is not yet his is presumptuous at least. So she said, I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now let's look at the structure of this phrase, which could stand alone as a sentence. First of all, I will give thee. This implies that whatever Jezebel is about to give, she has the right to give. 
I can't give you Brother Doug's fine-looking remodeled pickup that he brings up here from time to time. He's proud of that, and I, I think it's a wonderful thing that he did to, to restore it. But I couldn't give you that. He could if he wanted, and I don't think he wants to. But I don't have the right to give his property away. And Jezebel, even though she was the queen, had no right to give Naboth's property to anyone. Only Naboth did, and Naboth even said, I don't have that right. God said don't do it. So unless God gives it to somebody, it can't be given away. Now, what is she giving away? Look back at the text there. The vineyard of Naboth. That prepositional phrase, of Naboth. You could reword that and say, Naboth's vineyard. By her own declaration, she's admitting the vineyard is not hers to give because she said it was the vineyard of Naboth. So her sentence is hypocritical. For she said, I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. If the vineyard is Naboth's, then only he can rightfully give it to anyone. And even that option is off the table because God told the children of Israel in Numbers chapter 36, verse 7, So shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel remove from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep himself to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. So not only could Naboth not give his vineyard to a Gentile, but not even to the Jew or the Israelite of another tribe. He couldn't say, I think I'll let the tribe of Dan have this vineyard or the tribe of Levi. He had to keep it in his own tribe. So Jezebel would have had would had to have had Naboth's blessing and then God's blessing for her to have the right to give Naboth's vineyard to anyone or to take it for herself. So absent that, the only way she could give the vineyard to Ahab was to take it by force. And that, my friend, is a crime. What about Ahab's involvement here? It's not just Jezebel. Ahab initially coveted that vineyard. Jezebel wasn't the first one to covet the vineyard. It was Ahab. He laid eyes on it and he said, Hey, Naboth, I'll take that. I'll give you a better one than that. And we talked about uh, the, the logic of that, how that starts with little children on the playground doing, trying to pull those tricks on their friends. He initially coveted that vineyard. That was a sin. He sought to have Naboth break God's commandment to give that vineyard away, which was also a sin. And now Ahab, even now, has the chance to abandon this unlawful act by refusing to receive Naboth's vineyard. He could have said, you know what, I coveted that vineyard. I tried to make a deal and it didn't work out. And my wife has said, well, I'll get it for you. You just get up and eat and let your heart be merry. But I've had second thoughts. I want to repent of that. I want to abandon my involvement in this act. I do not want this to happen. 
But he doesn't abandon the act. He continues in it, which is a sin. I'm going to give you an example that plays out in Texas law and in every other law in the world, but particularly in Texas. In law enforcement, we occasionally charge people with a criminal conspiracy to commit an offense. That's one or more, well, more than one person being involved in committing an offense. So start with two. Sometimes it's as many as 10, 20, or an entire criminal organization. But let's say it's a bank robbery. So the person has conspired with at least one other person to rob the first national bank of Happyville, Texas. So he gets into the car with his partner. He's got his mask. He's got a bag to put the money in. And he's got a gun. He's all set, isn't he? And he's driving with his co-conspirator toward the Happyville First National Bank. But suddenly, he has a change of heart. He gets cold feet. He starts thinking about the consequences of his behavior. So he pulls over to a gas station. He gets out of the car. He takes that mask and that bag and that gun and throws it into a dumpster. And decides... He'd just rather walk home. His partner, on the other hand, gets in the driver's seat and and leaves in that car and drives to the bank and commits the bank robbery. Then he gets arrested by the Happyville Police Department. And during his interrogation, he tells the police detective, Hey, there was someone else with me. You know, as Brother Fulton mentioned in a recent message, that's what criminals do. They just turn on each other. And that's how we make a lot of our living, is getting them to do so. By the way, I'm going to continue to do that. So the detectives get a warrant, and they arrest the other man, the one who stopped at the gas station and threw his gun, his mask, and his bag in the vehicle, into the trash can. They get a warrant and they arrest him, and so he comes in for his interrogation and tells the truth. He tells the truth about his initial involvement. He says, yes, I, I was going to rob that bank. I talked about it. But I realized that what I was doing was going to be more trouble than I wanted to get into. So I abandoned my efforts in every way. I didn't go commit the bank robbery. I was thinking about it. I had planned on doing it, but I didn't do it. And I had nothing to do with it after the fact. I didn't help him hide or split the money or any of that. In Texas, this is called the renunciation defense. And it's an affirmative defense to prosecution. That means if he gets arrested and charged with it and goes to court, all his attorney has to do is argue beyond what's called a preponderance of evidence, meaning more yes than no that he renounced his involvement in the crime, and that's an affirmative defense. So that allows the court to rule in favor of that defendant and say, you're out of here. We're dismissing your charge. But you, buddy, who committed the crime, who drove to the bank and robbed it, you are still going to be tried. Well, you know Ahab had a chance to give the renunciation defense here. 
He had a chance to abandon his involvement in taking Naboth's vineyard at this point in the scripture. He could have told Jezebel, wait a minute now, I was wrong. I coveted a vineyard that belonged to Naboth, but I no longer want that. Don't you touch a hair on his head. Don't you do anything to that vineyard. Just leave it be. But Ahab stayed in the car and went to the bank and robbed it, didn't he? As we're going to see. He participated in the conspiracy with Jezebel all the way through. Now look down at verse 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name. Well, that tells us that Ahab wasn't all in like she was. He was the one who first coveted. But he was the king. All he had to do is write letters in his own name. So apparently there was some hesitation there on his part. And Jezebel said, just let me do it. I'll just do it. And what that tells us is Jezebel was willing to put herself equal to or above the king to execute this evil plot. Both as a queen, also as a wife. And who, may I ask you, is the author of exalting himself above the throne of God? It's Satan, isn't it? Every time. So we might rightly say, as Jesus did to those Pharisees in his day, ye are of your father the devil, and the works of your father you will do. And the lusts of her father she will do, and she did that. Why didn't Ahab write the letters himself? After all, he was the king of Israel. Well, he was weak. He was henpecked. He was hesitant. Perhaps he thought, if Jezebel writes the letters and something bad happens to Naboth, I can say, well, don't blame me. I didn't write the letters. I wasn't the one who commanded this awful thing to happen and throw her under the chariot like that. Notice that Naboth, or excuse me, uh, Ahab wouldn't even seal the letters. It says there, so she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent the letters unto the elders. Jezebel was the scribe. She was the sealer and she was the sender of those letters. If you ever hear someone label a woman as a Jezebel, just know what that really means in the Bible. If you base your definition of a Jezebel on only on what we've read in the Scripture so far, then you would conclude that a Jezebel is an ungodly wife who takes affirmative action to lead her husband into evil. An ungodly wife who takes affirmative action to lead her husband into evil. And perhaps we will add to this definition later as we continue our study. Look now with me in verse 9. And she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth on high among the people. The plot here is to draw Naboth in by proclaiming a fast. He appeared to be a righteous man. So surely he's not going to turn down the opportunity 
to fast unto the Lord. And as a wise serpent, Jezebel uses the occasion of a religious rite, fasting, to draw in the godly man, Naboth. In the Bible, fasting was observed with repentance or with a hungering for righteousness. But never was it supposed to be used to destroy the righteous. That was never a legal occasion for fasting. Don't forget, Jezebel was a spiritual prostitute. She'd killed many of God's prophets. She would have killed all of them had Obadiah not hidden a hundred of them in a cave or in two caves. She believed in many gods rather than the one true God. For she said, so let the gods do unto me also if Naboth lives past this time tomorrow. And so are many pulpits in the world today, in churches, church buildings. They are without God. They are unbelievers. And yet they use the religious occasion of a Sunday morning service to further Satan's evil work and to do despite to the kingdom of God and to the spirit of his grace. They elevate their government and they put God's government down. They also have the spirit of Jezebel and they are of their father, the devil. In verse 9 it said, at the end, she said to set Naboth on high. To set Naboth on high. That would be in a chief place or in a high place. And this was no doubt used to appeal to Naboth's flesh. After all, who in the flesh would not want to be set on high? However, Naboth is not someone who's charmed by the delights of his world. So having a fast is more likely to appeal to Naboth than being set on high. Imagine that. This shows Jezebel's illiteracy of God's word. Proclaim a fast. Now, a fast is a time where you humble yourself. You deny yourself food or water or whatever it is you're denying yourself. You fast. And being set on high is self-exaltation. So she covered her bases, didn't she? In case he says, no, I don't want to be set on high. Well, Naboth, you would come to a fast, wouldn't you? Or if he says, you know, I don't, I don't want to be hungry. Oh, well, we'll set you on high. She gave him two admission tickets to this event. In verse 10, she continues, this is what the letter says, and set two men, sons of Belial, before him. To bear witness against him, saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king, and then carry him out and stone him that he may die. Short letter, powerful letter, evil letter. She said, Set two men that they may bear witness against him. Jezebel actually uses a biblical requirement to fulfill an unbiblical scheme. Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 6, Deuteronomy 17, 6, God commanded the children of Israel through Moses, 
At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. Jezebel knew better than to just put one son of Belial there to bear witness against Naboth and try to convince the people to kill him. Because the requirement was two or more witnesses. Blasphemy of God and of the king were death penalty crimes. Blasphemy of a king in any ungodly society, particularly where it's a monarchy or dictatorship as we have there in North Korea and China and other places, is a death penalty crime in many cases. But blasphemy of God is a death penalty crime here in the Word of God. Leviticus 24.16 tells us that. It says, And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall certainly stone him, as well as the stranger, as he that is born in the land. When he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall be put to death. The Hebrew word that is translated blaspheme is translated as blaspheme in one other place, but almost always in the Old Testament it is translated as the word blessing. Isn't that interesting? And it means to kneel. So perhaps this changes the way you view the word blasphemy. One who appears to kneel before God but is in opposition to God is a blasphemer in the truest sense of this word. One who appears to be blessing God, though he is really cursing God, is a blasphemer. You may say, where do where you see that in the Bible? All right. Mark chapter 5, in Mark chapter 5, we read about a demon-possessed man. Now, don't forget that. This was a man, but he was possessed with demons. A demon-possessed man who lived among the tombs. And listen to how the Bible describes the way this man approached Jesus. And this is Mark chapter 5, and it's verses 6 through 8 that I'm going to read. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. This was an unclean spirit or spirits talking to the Lord Jesus Christ through the voice of this man. And the Bible tells us they worshipped him. The Bible tells us they called him the son of the most high God. Boy, those are good things, aren't they? Good things to do. And yet this was an unbelieving demon. If you'll remember who said them, you'll understand why they were blasphemy. These were devils who said the words, so many of them, in fact, that they were called legion. They were the ones who possessed this man, and their worship was false. Their worship was blasphemy. For them to worship, for them to say, Thou Son of the Most High God, and yet be in direct opposition to God in all he stands for, they said the words, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, but they did not trust in him. That's blasphemy. In the New Testament... The word blasphemy, the English word blasphemy, 
is also a substitute, or there are words substituted for it, such as evil speaking or railing. So you have a Greek word translated as blasphemy, but also translated as evil speaking or railing. And we studied, I believe we've gotten to the word railing in the book of Jude, that uh, even Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil about the body of Moses, he durst not bring against him a railing accusation. So in the Old Testament, it means either blessing or in a few instances, it's translated as cursing. But in either case, words spoken in blasphemy are words spoken in unbelief and they're evil whether they're spoken outwardly or inwardly. So if a person, a, a Christian who may be fragile, who may be uh, sometimes lacking the assurance, the devil's hollering at them all day long, hey, you're not really saved, what about this, what about that? Sometimes they think, well, I think I, I committed blasphemy. You're not an unbeliever, are you? Are you a believer? Right, you didn't commit blasphemy. How ironic is it? in our text, that the sons of Belial were going to accuse Naboth of blasphemy. That's the pot calling the kettle black, isn't it? And he and Naboth wasn't even a kettle. They're the ones who are the blasphemers, the sons of Belial, using the occasion of fasting. This is what a false church does. In fact, let's just keep it tight within the so-called independent Baptist circle. When an unbeliever is in the pulpit of an independent Baptist church, he usually looks the part of a preacher, whatever that means. His words are filled with passion and a lot of volume, sometimes choreographed with a little dance up and down the stage. His tears seem to be flowing with conviction. And he will, as have so many, tell people they need to get saved. And to get saved, he'll tell them to come down to the steps at the front of a church. I'm not going to call it an altar because it's not one. God said there won't be any steps on my altar that when the priests walk up, their nakedness won't be exposed. Okay? We've learned that before, but just to remind you, in case we have a fresh listener who hasn't heard that, he may say, come to the steps down here and take me by the hand and let's just kneel down here together and repeat this prayer very sincerely. Nowhere in that is there mention of the sinner's debt of sin, the atoning work of Jesus when he shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. And that unbelieving preacher will tell that poor, confused sinner, all right, now you're saved. You said that prayer. Did you mean it? Okay, well, you're saved. You need to live for God and read your Bible and pray. And pat them on the backside and send them back to their pew. And that poor person goes away in a worse shape than they were before. But then a saved preacher, one who believes the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, confronts that independent Baptist preacher about his error and tells him, Sir, in your salvation message, there is no cross. There's no blood. There's no crucified Christ in your gospel. And you're wrong, and you need to agree with God about this matter. 
What does that independent fundamental preacher usually do? I'm going to tell you because I know. Look at the text. There in verse 10. And set two men, sons of Belial, before him to bear witness against him, saying, Now didst blaspheme God and the king. That independent fundamental Baptist preacher does just that. Sometimes he'll use deacons or sometimes he'll do it himself. They set sons of Belial before the righteous preacher to bear witness against him, saying he's blaspheming God, that he just doesn't want to see people saved, that he doesn't believe God's word. That unbelieving independent Baptist preacher won't put up with being humiliated by someone calling him out on his doctrine. So he sets about to destroy the one who came to set him straight. I've seen this in many churches, and our pastor has too. One in particular involved a child molester who remained in the pulpit after the facts of his perversion came to light. And that church set sons of Belial to destroy the godly men who confronted that pastor and told him, you need to step down, you are disqualified. And those men and many of their families as well had to leave the church. By God's grace, may we never, never be in a position where we seek to destroy those who have come to us with the truth just because it contradicts our error. In fact, may God enable and bless the correction of his preachers and his people so that we stay true to his word. That's what it's all about. That's all correction should be about is to put us back in line with God's word. When you correct your children, what are you doing? You're putting them back in line with your expectations of them, with your commands. That's, that's what you're doing, and you're doing it in love. You're doing it because you love them. You're doing it because what you told them to do is the right thing to do. And God gave us his word because he loves us. And when he corrects us, it's not to make our lives miserable. It's to use the means at his disposal, which are all means, by the way, to get us back in line with his word. And if a preacher is humble, and I know some who have been, thank God for them, who have received correction from God's word and said, you know what? I was wrong about that. Thank you. And I'm not going to prop myself up here, but I've been set right in the scripture too. And I'm very thankful for it. Or I'd have gone on preaching an error about something. It could have been what people call a minor doctrine. But it doesn't matter to me. I just want to be right with the scripture, whether it's minor or major. I don't want to have the spirit of Jezebel. It says, and carry him out and stone him that he may die. There in verse 10. This was the death sentence upon a righteous man. A sentence that was supposed to have been given in blasphemy cases. This fraudulent accusation and unrighteous sentence was also done in another place in God's word. 
If you'd like, turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. It's been a while since we've studied Acts verse by verse. I think some of you were here with us when we did. Back when we used to meet over in the fellowship hall. Acts chapter 6. I'll wait for you. I'd rather you see it than just hear it. All right. Look down with me in verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people. Who were those people? They are sons of Belial, weren't they? And the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. And after Stephen, the next many verses all the way through the end of chapter 7, after Stephen had preached to all those people, the people's response is recorded for us in Acts chapter 7. Let's look at verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Did you notice what they did before These sons of Belial, what did they do before they stoned Stephen? They stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear the truth. They didn't want to hear any more of God's word. They didn't want to receive correction from God's word. And these were religious people. Why, do you remember who we read about there in chapter 6, verses 8 through 12? It said they were people of the synagogue. And in in verse 12, there were elders and scribes. These are religious people, many of them, who ran upon him. They were still sons of Belial. And just like the sons of Belial in Stephen's day, you can turn back to your text now. The sons of Belial in Jezebel's day cared nothing about God's word except when they could use it to further their own agenda. And it continues to be that way in many churches today. You know, we can't undo all the damage that apostate preachers, teachers have done over the centuries. We can't go back and correct the thinking of every person who's heard a doctrine of heresy. Most of them are dead. And most of those preachers, if they were alive, wouldn't stand for any of that correction any more than these scribes did, these chief men and elders of the synagogue. 
But what we can do is damage control and make sure that the people who hear us preach and teach this precious word hear it right. We can't even make you believe it right, but we can teach it right, and then you'll know what to believe. Back in our text, we're in 1 Kings 21 again. Look with me in verse 11. And the men of his city, even the elders and the nobles who were the inhabitants in his city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them, and as it was written in the letters which she had sent unto them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth on high among the people. And there came in two men, children of Belial, and sat before him. And the men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. Then they carried him forth out of the city and stoned him with stones that he died. The sons of Belial carried out the orders of the worshipers of Baal, who were also sons of Belial, Call them by different names, different religions, different denominations or affiliations. But these unbelievers who seek to destroy God's people have one thing in common. They're all sons of Belial, regardless of what age they lived in, the clothing they wear, or the office they occupied. Verse 14. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth is stoned and is dead. This sounds like a mafia hit, doesn't it? And it was. The boss stays home while the soldiers do the dirty work. Verse 15. And it came to pass, when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. Did you notice the justification Jezebel used here? Take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money. She may as well have said it's Naboth's own fault that he died. After all, he had the chance to take the money for his vineyard and save his life at the same time. To simplify this, Jezebel gave Naboth a chance but she didn't give him a viable choice. She made him an offer he couldn't refuse. What would that choice have been? To sell the land and break God's law or to keep the land and lose his life? And thank God, Naboth chose not the riches of this world, but the righteousness of God. And he died for it. And we'll have to be prepared to possibly do that, too, in our lifetimes. Any questions about the lesson? Comments about the lesson? All right, let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're very thankful for the truths of your word that came out today. And, Lord, I pray all the ears listened and that we would take from this message that truth and it would find a lodging place in our hearts. And we would be able to draw from it as we live our daily lives and avoid the error, and avoid believing the Jezebels of this world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.